Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Republic of Childhood Fall Season on Writers' Festival Radio. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. My name is Aidan Wilson, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I'm a student at Lisker Collegiate Institute in Ottawa, and I'm a co-founder of the Republic of Childhood. Today, we continue our Republic of Childhood season with a closer look at what Canada has to do to protect the well-being of children with two leading educators, Kim Hellemans and Jane Bertrand, both in conversation with Neil Wilson. Special thanks to the Ottawa Community Foundation and the TELUS Friendly Future Foundation for supporting our virtual Republic programming. We begin with Kim Hellemans. Dr. Kim Hellemans is a teaching professor and chair of the Department of Neuroscience at Carleton University. She is also the co-host of award-winning podcast, Minding the Brain. Here's her conversation with Neil. Um, Welcome everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us today uh, for this uh, Republic of Childhood uh, podcast. And we're looking at over two weeks some of the challenges facing Canada in protecting the, the well-being of children and supporting children in, in their voices to be heard and in allowing them to take center stage in decisions that affect them directly in terms of their own personal growth. And today uh, we're very uh, happy to have with us Dr. Kim Hellemans, who is a teaching professor and chair of the Department of Neuroscience at Carleton University. She has received several prestigious teaching awards that uh, recognize her passion and dedication to university teaching. Her current research is focused on student mental health with a focus on how current life stressors, cannabis use and social media among university students relate to mental health and academic outcomes. She's also passionate about knowledge translation and knowledge mobilization and has created several freely available animations on the topic of neuroscience, addiction, and stigma. She's also the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Minding the Brain. Uh, Welcome, Kim, to our Republic of Childhood podcast. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for having me. And congratulations uh, to you and your co-host, Jim Davies, for winning uh, the People's Choice Award for favorite Canadian science site uh, from the Science Writers and Communications uh, of Canada. This is uh, pretty awesome. Yes, it was uh, quite a welcome surprise. Well, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Carlton is, is my alma mater as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been working with the Writers Festival uh, for at least 15 of our 22 years with Carlton and uh, Carleton University is also a, a very strong supporter of our work with kids and youth. And um, <clears throat> the conversation we had with, with, uh, uh, with Carleton in, in the very beginning was that we wanted to bring some of the academic research that's going on at Carleton and at, um, you know, in the academy around the world and bring it directly to Canadians. And that's certainly what your, your podcast is doing, Minding the Brain. As academics, we don't really have such a, a great way, you know, our, the way that we convey our science is often to others within our field. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the exception of folks that write books that are meant for a more lay audience or, or a sci- educated science audience, um, 
you know, we tend to have conversations with ourselves and, and I think there's a real value in communicating our science to the general public, especially as you say, when we are living in, you know, what's called the infodemic, right? The, mm -hmm. the vast swapping of misinformation that gets perpetuated across many um, social and mainstream media, mainstream media less so, but, and disinformation, which is nefarious. So I think we have a role to play. I think it's, a, it's an important and crucial role. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, it's very important. And um, I'm enjoying, I, I must say, I'm late to your podcast. Uh, I'm a bit of a, I'm a journalism graduate from uh, 1970. So that tells you where I'm coming from in terms of my uh, comfort level with technology. I'm still with a pencil and paper. Kim, the New York Times Magazine on September 13th um, of this year devoted an entire issue called The Lost Year. And it looked at the transformation of school and learning as a result of the uh, coronavirus pandemic mm. and asked what will be the effects on children. Now, I realize uh, that in-depth research takes years, but from where you stand, can you give us an idea of what kinds of long-term implications the loss of learning and social emotional development might have on the lives of our children and youth? I think a nuanced approach is really necessary here in that there will be across the board, there will be folks that will be more impacted and there will be folks that will be less impacted. And we can say this about adults and we can say this about children as well. For whatever reason, uh, there are always a small proportion of the population, well, uh, yeah, small-ish proportion of the population that show what's called post-traumatic growth and, and that are quite resilient. So we have to be mindful that there are some kids that may thrive coming out of these situations. But I think it's also mindful to, to pay attention to uh, children who, who may well experience um, significant negative outcomes as a result of the pandemic. And of course, as you indicate, some of it is around um, a loss of normal play behavior, right? So uh, with the, if a child is in school, uh, there are a number of measures that are in place in order to um, mitigate in the infectiousness of COVID if, if a child was to be ill. So social distancing, masks, et cetera. And then even um, in, in the playground, there are definitely measures in place to ensure that children aren't um, cut, uh, you know, uh, coming in close contact. So, you know, there, there are interruptions in their normal play-based behavior, uh, which could have an impact on, on their well-being. So there's that piece that's more the acute piece. And then there's the, also the piece of how this is going to impact their mental health and well-being down the line, because there are, and I want to focus in here that there are just, there are folks that are more vulnerable, right? So um, when we experience something as stressful as a pandemic, which, um, you know, has, has a huge, you know, ripple of stressors to come out of it, right? Including like perhaps, you know, economic challenges in, in the family home. Uh, uh, you might have a parent that's an essential care worker 
or working essential services. Um, you might have a parent that they themselves ha are experiencing mental health challenges as a result of the pandemic, fear, anxiety, and so on. And, and the child is bearing witness to that. Um, so what's happening in the home, can, the children will feel that. And then also then that, that, that puts them at risk for, for the further development of their own mental health condition. So I have, you know, for example, heard anecdotally of some children who really are not coping well, uh, who are experiencing an escalation in anxiety symptoms. Uh, so again, I want to emphasize that this, this is not across the board, right? That it's not everybody coming out of the pandemic is going to experience um, these impacts in, a, in the same way. Some children will thrive, some children will feel the stresses and strains, but will adapt, and then some children will really not do well. And <clears throat> These uh, anxiety uh, symptoms that um, we're hearing about, and I certainly too, just from my own reading um, in the media and on social media and talking to uh, colleagues, um, on top of the pandemic, you have this Generation Z, um, you have a number of stressors or crises that are impacting at the same time. For example, um, you have the climate crisis, which, mm. and then mm -hmm. on top of that, um, social justice issues, which mm -hmm. children which and youth. racism. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think in, in my many, many years on the planet and working in the schools mm. for many years, I don't think I've seen a generation of kids that are so impacted. And I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the long term, will the brain evolve to deal with uh, these kinds of stressors? Or, I mean, because we keep hearing or I keep hearing that the brain is the most adaptable of all the organs in the body. You, you know, we've heard stories of people who in, in wartime situations have a severe uh, brain injury and somehow the brain is able to rewire itself and and get back to um, a level of functioning that was almost unheard of so i'm just I'm, I'm wondering if what evolution will do mm. because i don't see us getting out of this new reality where systems are being challenged so fundamentally yeah, you know, and that's a complex question, and I and I fear, you know, what I'm providing you is really an opinion based on my scientific background. So somebody else could have an equally valid opinion. So I want to emphasize that. But for sure, the brain is adaptive. It 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 it's plastic. We have what's called neuroplasticity that the brain continues to change throughout the process of development in order to cope with the changing environmental circumstances, right? So imagine living in a cold, uh, being born in a cold climate and moving to a warm climate. climate. The brain has to upregulate and downregulate or turn on and turn off various processes that mediate body temperature, right? It's a very simplistic um, analogy there. Uh, when you're, what you're talking about is that, you know, this generation is, is facing many more complex global issues uh, climate change, anti-Black racism, now a pandemic. Um, how will this change the future? How will the brain change um, at a 
you know, we talk about what's called a phylogenetic and ontogenic um, um, changes. So uh, ontogenic is the development of the individual, phylogenetic is the development of the species. So I think what you're asking is more at a species level, uh, are we going to see changes in, in the brain? And, you know, it's a great thought experiment. Um, the, you know, when, when our, our brain responds to stressors, it activates a series of brain circuits that are initiated in order to cope with the stressor. And, and crucially, the very front part of our brain, which is known as the, the frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex, is, is in place, it's the most recently evolved part of the brain, but it's there to kind of keep a check on things. It's like your, your brain's like a CEO or executive director. And it's there to say like, shh, quiet down, you know, the stress isn't there anymore or be quiet. Or it says, alert, 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 something to, to, to be, you know, you're being threatened, your survival is being threatened. And so, you know, on, a, on an individual level, if folks are susceptible to anxiety disorders or mental health conditions, uh, what that could mean is over time with being faced with these continual stressors, that the brain, the, the very front part of the brain is, is not as able to silence uh, those other brain regions that kind of send out the uh, the alarm bells and, and release hormones and chemicals into the bloodstream so that the, the organism, the, the individual is better able to cope with the stressor. Um, and what this might mean is, you know, are we going to see like perhaps those that have enhanced frontal brain function uh, less likely to be, to develop mental health disorders and therefore, like when we think about adaptation and brains changing across a species, it has to be inherited, right? So then is it more likely that those children, uh, they're more likely to procreate and, and, and reproduce and have children that they themselves have enhanced frontal cortical function. The challenge with mental health is that it is, it, often the onset is around adolescence or early adulthood, meaning that you know, and I'm giving a very complex explanation for why mental health disorders continue to perpetuate is that they don't exactly prevent us from reproducing, right? So you mm. can have a mental health disorder and continue to, to, to have kids and so on, which is great, right? You don't want that. Um, and, and so I think I'm giving a long shaggy dog explanation to say, it's possible that our brains will change. It's possible that we'll have um, f the next generation of you of, of young people um, may have enhanced frontal cortical function because that is is going to make it um, so that they're better able to cope and be more resilient with stressors. Yes, well, um, you know, one can hope. Uh, we certainly our festival and festivals across the country and. Uh, you know, institutions like Carleton University and universities around the world, as well as cities and, and governments, <clears throat> I think are confronted uh, as a result of this uh, pandemic. They, 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 there seems to be an opportunity uh, to make changes in how we look mm -hmm. at the jobs we do uh, given the fact that in spite of all of our technology and uh, uh, our research and, and knowledge, we were basically caught uh, unawares for the most part. You know, there, there are some countries that have adapted much better than 
Canada, North America, and some parts of Europe. But I'm wondering um, what, as an educator, how do you feel about your position, say, as the chair of the Department of Neuroscience? Has what's gone on, will it impact the way you try to ensure that kids um, are better prepared or educators are more prepared for this new world uh, of social disruption that that seems to be Mm -hmm. yeah i think the the term or the phrase that we use is build back better right Mm. that um you know this is a, a period of massive disruption it's disrupted uh at least you know from where i sit the way i deliver um education to the next generation of you know citizen scholars. It's changed the way I interact with my colleagues. It's changed the way I I do research and and what I'm studying. So it's shaken up everything. And it's a real, it's an interesting thought to wonder how will we change permanently or how have we changed permanently? What will will the post-COVID era look like? Will we Mm -hmm. adopt some of the practices that we've adopted in the, the COVID era. Um, because there's a lot to be said about how we are providing more equitable education opportunities, hmm. right? So students with disabilities now have across the board the, the opportunity to press pause on a recording, right? Students uh, reaching us from other parts of the world you know, if we're doing uh, asynchronous delivery of our of our lectures, can watch it on their at their local time. Um, you know, we're we are f- faced with sort of reflecting and thinking, like how how might what's working, what's actually working right now. That's that might actually be better in in the future. But then, of course, wondering what this is going to look like in terms of our social interactions, which I think is really um, what I think is most people are lamenting. I mean, I, I want to be back in the classroom. I personally, as much as I think there are aspects of my remote learning environment that are really great, I, I would not be happy if this was permanent. I want to be able to have those one-on-one conversations with my students in person. I wanna have some degree of face-to-face interaction and same with my colleagues. So I think we have an opportunity here to to reflect and think think about what is going to be the best circumstance for everybody moving forward. Um, And I think I'm almost excited to see what that might look like. Apprehensive, but excited. Uh, Hopefully, we are going to bring the whole learning uh, situation or the education situation into the 21st century. Yeah, there's, it's interesting you say that because at Carleton, we, we recently started a Students as Partners program, which um, is where a faculty member, a student is partnered with a faculty member to work with them to redesign, reevaluate um, anything related to a course um, for the following semester. So I work with a student 
and they kind of, you know, they might develop new assessments or they might help me develop lecture content, um, which is really, uh, mm. you know, it's something I, I believe very much in. And, and in fact, that's part of my portfolio is, is the idea of students as partners. And, and I was, I, I actually helped initiate the students as partners program at Carleton. Um, because I truly believe that, that students have a lot to offer. They, they help us shape knowledge. They help us create knowledge. They help us um, re-envision knowledge, right? Like if, if that's what university and education is about, it's not just like, here are the facts, see you later. It's about a, a space of exploration to, to deliver, here's what we know about the world, but here's also what we don't know. And here are new ways of trying to understand what we don't know. And, and I think youth and children and, and university students and, you know, we, we can't neglect the naive learner because I think they offer unique perspectives, right? A, a student who sits in my classroom who might have a disability or is neurodiverse in some way, shape or form may not be able to grasp the information I'm presenting because I'm using a, a modality that only appeases a small portion of my student population. So why don't I work with that student so that they can uh, say how their experience is and that I may be able to adapt and provide a, a, a you know, broaden my toolbox, so to speak, so that I can speak to uh, the diverse learners in my classroom. Mm. And, 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 you know, until you said that, I realized like there really is no mechanism in elementary or secondary school to have students provide feedback for how a course is going or, or teacher is um, and, and to inform the curriculum. There, well, you're, you're absolutely right there, you know, and I think maybe are we missing out? Well, you know, I, I when I uh, think of a utopia, and, and we're, we're talking with some teachers that we work with and, and some principals, you know, uh, on a casual basis, you know, if, if you look at having children, say, from, well, let's say preschool uh, up to high school graduation, so, I don't know, 15 years or so, imagine what we could do if we introduce this idea that you're developing at Carleton, you know, students mm -hmm. as partners mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, spent less time on the, you know, that the objective evaluation process and more on, uh, you know, finding out. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's not that difficult. I don't think uh, maybe with 20 kids and 200 kids in a first year university course, but generally kids, and young people will tell you if they're given a chance, what interests mm -hmm. them and what turns them on. And, you know, surely that should be a large part of the learning process. Yeah. And like you said, I think a lot of the modality in which we're teaching is, is in this 20th century. Um, we're, we're slow, you know, it's like changing, a, what is the expression? Turning a large ship, right? Mm -hmm. the way in which we we've provided education really hasn't changed in 200 years, 300 years. I don't know. I think in 1900s, uh, you know, sit, students sitting at desks, although, you know, there was some, some change in some more of the more new classrooms. They have like beanbag chairs and enrichment toys that they can fiddle with. Um, but it, it's still, you know, stage on the stage teacher stands up, gives a lesson, kid learns, kid provides work, that's assessed, right? It, 
is this really, you know, you talked about the brain evolving. Is this really what the 21st century brain is best equipped to do? Are we, are we really um, also doing a good job of teaching the neurodiverse students in our classroom, right? Who are often like they're given EAs and they're, you know, taken aside, giving special curriculum. Well, now, you know, it seems that this is more um, normative to be neurodiverse. Well, certainly. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Kim. No, it's just more, yeah, like kids, like wanting to move around and, and explore their environment and learn by doing right? As opposed to sitting and passively receiving information. Like I shouldn't speak, it's just a broad brush. I'm sure there is, you know, there are examples of, of, student, of teachers that learn by doing for sure. Um, but I, I think, I think there could be, there could be room for innovation. Well, I, when you look at the youth activism, you know, the so-called uh, students for revolution that have inspired many of us adults in terms of their passion and their um, willingness to be on the front lines, quitting, getting out of school every Friday to point out certain realities that we adults um, have neglected for so long. And now they're, they're basically left to clean up our mess. You look at one of the, a couple of the, the leaders of this movement are on the spectrum you know, the mm-hmm. autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and there's been a lot of research um, over the years and recently that suggests, I believe, that neurodiversity is perhaps one of the, the steps in the evolution of the brain to um, push back against, you know, the mechanization, you know, the idea that you know, that the brain is like a machine or like kids are like a machine. You feed in certain, uh, you know, pieces of curricula or facts that haven't changed, you know, in many years and that you will get, you know, a certain product that will then, uh, you know, they will become contributors to society and taxpayers Mm -hmm. and responsible Mm -hmm. adults. But I think we're hearing from a lot of kids that, you know, uh, we need a systems change. We really need to, and, and a lot of these, these uh, children and youth are because of the technology and I guess because of their own brain mechanism, they have a different worldview that um, many of us who grew up in a more traditional household and, uh, social and educational system don't have your your Mm. podcast is minding the brain so i i'm wondering if you could speak with us uh, about the connection between the mind the brain and perhaps you might even talk about consciousness oh boy (laughs) these are big (laughs) ideas um so you know, it's important to recognize that the, brain, the mind and the brain are not separate, right? So that would be an idea mm-hmm. that would have been endorsed by Descartes in the 17th century, who proposed the idea of dualism, which was that the mind and the brain were separate. And the mind resided in a tiny little part of the brain called the pineal gland, which is false. And the pineal gland actually produces melatonin, which helps regulates 
regulate your sleep-wake cycle, but that's an aside. <laughs> so um, the brain is, is the physical organ that I would say is responsible for producing the mind, right? So the brain is interesting and unique in that it is the only organ in the human body, at least what we know of today, that has specialized cells that communicate with one another. And these cells are called neurons. Uh, although there are other populations of cells in the brain called glial cells, which increasingly are being recognized as contributing to that cell communication. So neurons talk to one another and they do so in an electrical chemical fashion. So they have an electrical potential, which means they have electrical energy that can be changed. And when that electrical energy is changed in a specific way, that is a signal, right? So it, 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 if, it, if it's turned up or turned down, uh, that signal is sent to a neighboring neuron, and that signal is sent in the form of, of specialized chemicals called neurotransmitters. Now, um, the very outermost layer of the brain, which is known as the cerebral cortex, and that's cortex uh, from the Latin word for bark, because it's this layer of cells that it's almost, if you can imagine, a sheet of paper uh, that has all these cells on that sheet of paper and then layer on top another five sheets of paper, that would be the cells of the cortex. And then you kind of crumple it up and cover it on top of a ball. And, and that's essentially what the cortex looks like because it's all wrinkled in appearance. And the cells in the cortex are interesting in that they are thought to be the seat of human consciousness or thought or um, the mind, right? So when we, when we become aware of something, so either you know the hunger in our bellies, uh, grumbling tummy saying it's time to eat lunch or um, the, the feeling of heat or cold, depending on your environment, or even hearing a loud bang in your periphery, uh, what happens is that your, your sensory nerves take in that information from your periphery and, and funnels up into the brain. And then the, one of the last regions that it hits is your cortex. And when that information gets there, that's when it's thought to be aware. You're aware of that, right? So we have lots of different cortical loops, meaning we're, we have loops to our motor function, our sensory, so sight, taste, touch, smell, uh, hearing, and then also with learning and memory and sleep and dreaming and uh, motivation and emotions. So uh, basically all our core functioning, the things, the, the circuits in the brain that keep us alive uh, and free from threats, all are there to serve that purpose. And then when they hit our cortex, those cells that are firing, then tell us, oh, something is happening and we become aware of it. And that is presumably what is the mind. Although not really, you know, nobody's actually said, oh, here's the mind, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of this abstract concept. And, and we know, you, you, you mentioned consciousness, we know that uh, these cells uh, govern or control consciousness, because when you give drugs, or you take drugs that alter your state of consciousness, so things like anesthetics that put you to sleep for surgery, they alter the firing of the cells in the cortex. And similarly, we know in certain stages of sleep and dreaming, the, the cells that are in the cortex fire at a very different rate, uh, indicating different states of consciousness. Wow. This is very interesting. And of course, um, the old school, I guess, would say um, that the core functioning or when the cells fire, it's 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 automatic. It's almost like a stimulus response. Whereas 
I think the research you're doing suggests that we can consciously change our core functioning, or I don't know if I'm mm -hmm. using the terms mm. correctly, but by using, mm. uh, you know, mindfulness and, mm -hmm. and these certain techniques. And I think studies mm. have been done um, on people who are meditating and people who are mindful that <clears throat> this is something that has been, you know, generally overlooked as a tool, if you will, or, 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 you know, another opening into how, excuse me, we can, we can change our mind and therefore our brain functions. That's right. That's exactly, you hit the nail on the head is, you know, it's one of the core fundamental beliefs of cognitive behavioral therapy and really any, any treatment strategy where, part of the condition that somebody might experience is like intrusive thoughts, right? So that's a piece of really most psychiatric diseases, right? In depression, it's like the negative thoughts that are playing on a loop. In anxiety, it's the anxious thoughts. In substance use disorder, it's those thoughts related to craving. And, you know, harnessing the, the, the control of the, of the prefrontal cortex or the, that cortex to silence those thoughts right? You can change your mind. You can. And, and you don't need to take drugs in order to change your mind either. You can do it through things like mindfulness meditative practice or a lot of, you know, therapeutic strategies that target the, the reframing or the repatterning of those thoughts, even things like neurofeedback, which is gaining a lot of attention in, uh, in science for being a technique that can can help control and regulate corti the cortex again, uh, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and rehabilitation therapy. I don't know if you've heard of that. You know, so anything where you're 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 kind of consciously working on repatterning your thoughts, um, it's like it's like paving a new road in your brain. Kim, this has been. Um... Uh, very wonderful. Thank you so much for um, shedding some some light and uh, giving us some insights in how uh, you know what the connection is uh, between the mind and the brain. And and hopefully, we'll see some of your students um, blazing uh, new new trails in the education system that will uh, give our kids and adults, everybody. Um, you know, new opportunities and new insights into how we can uh, uh, build back better. For sure. Thank you so much, Neil. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thank you. And take care, Kim. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was co-founder Neil Wilson in conversation with Kim Hellemans. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for the collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. 
Up next, it's Neil's conversation with Jane Bertrand. Jane Bertrand is the program director at the Margaret and Wallace McCain Family Foundation. She's also an adjunct professor at OISE, University of Toronto, and has authored a new textbook, Becoming and Being an Early Childhood Professional, and has contributed to several guides and handbooks related to play-based learning. Here's their conversation. Uh, Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Neil Wilson. I'm the co-founder of the Republic of Childhood, the youth and child arm of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, which we launched in November 2017 to commemorate the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Writers' Festival. You know, we keep hearing that children are the future, children are the foundation of a cohesive society, Children are the backbone of a strong economy and a prosperous nation. And yet, Canada does not have a national child care program, and Canada ranks 33rd out of 35 members of the OECD in enrollment in early childhood education programs. For more than a decade, the state of childhood in Canada has been on the decline. Canada ranks 30th out of 38 affluent nations for protecting the well-being of children, according to UNICEF, a significant drop from 12th place in 2007. As a country, we have been going in the wrong direction for far too long. With us uh, today to help us navigate these numbers and to discuss how we might improve outcomes for young children, we are joined by Jane Bertrand. Jane is the author of Becoming and Being an Early Childhood Professional, which will be published in 2021, just in a a couple of months. She also co-authored The Essentials of Early Childhood Education, Canadian Edition, and has contributed to several guides related to play-based learning. Jane is also the program director of the Margaret and Wallace McCain Family Foundation, which focuses on early childhood education practices, policies, and research in Canada. She's an adjunct professor at OISE, University of Toronto, and participates in OISE's Flex Early Learning PhD program. Jane is a coordinator of Early Year Study 4 and was the research coordinator for the three previous Early Year Studies. Uh, Welcome, Jane, and thank you so much for bringing this study to our attention and for outlining in very plain English, the many benefits of early childhood education. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for that kind introduction and for the uh, fabulous podcast that you produce. Well, we're, you know, like many festivals, uh, we're reinventing ourselves online and, uh, you know, it has its upsides and downsides. We certainly miss being there with with our guests in person and uh, that uh, the excitement of actually, you know, seeing somebody live and, and having real-time conversations. But the beauty of the online experience is that we're reaching, in fact, more people than we could, obviously, uh, if they were to travel to Ottawa for our events. Um, uh, Jane, you, the, the early childhood study four, the, the most recent one, says that the ages uh, from two to five are critical years for learning. 
Now, would you, could you briefly uh, give us an idea of how the preschool brain builds on the foundation for lifelong learning? Sure. The preschool brain builds on what's happened in the first 1,000 days during the prenatal period and, and first couple of years of life and sets some very basic uh, neural pathways in place for, that are essential for survival, for our sensory systems, for how we respond to others. In the second 1,000 days, or from two, roughly two to five years, those parts of the brain that have been established join up with the parts of the brain that are truly unique to the human species. In particular, the front prefrontal cortex, which is right up there under your forehead, is particularly important. This is un the, the complexity and capacity and potential of human uh, prefrontal cortexes is what sets us apart in many ways from other species. It is what is, allows us to learn from previous experiences, from previous societies, and to incorporate those learnings moving forward. Just a quick example. All humans, unless there is a serious um, development of a problem, organic problem with the brain, all humans are born pre-wired to learn oral language. Hmm. We learn it from others, but we're pre-wired to learn it. However, we are not pre-wired to learn to read. That is a human capacity. It's socially constructed knowledge in the lingual. Uh, it means that we pass it on from one generation to the next. We are not required as human beings to rediscover the whole uh, rediscover or, and reconstruct basic symbolic systems. We learn them from older people in our society. We learn them from the environment around us. We learn it from being read to, et cetera, et cetera, and it passes along. So learning to read is fundamentally different from learning to talk. Mm. The, the pathways that allow us to acquire socially constructed learning are really set between ages two and five. Now, it's not a hard line in the sand. You do it before then or it never happens. It's much more. I'm, I'm using shorthand when I say two to five as, as the study does. But it is a prime time when those basic um, uh, neural pathways essential for survival join up with our prefrontal cortex, uh, which allows us to acquire the, the tools necessary uh, in whatever culture we live in for survival. Um, in many cultures right now, in many societies, being able to acquire literacy and numeracy capacity is pretty essential. Uh, and therefore, and the foundation for those are set in, the, in those preschool years. Well, if these uh, years, Jane, are so critical for learning and for, in fact, the future development of the young mind as it, as it blossoms into adulthood, why is it that one in four Canadian children, according to your study, are ill-equipped? They're not prepared to start school. Well, that, that one in four... Percentage. 
Yeah, no, 25% of kids are identified through something called the Early Development Instrument that's out of the Offord Center at McMaster University. Uh, that's a population level measure uh, that assesses kids on about 100 different items in five categories uh, and looks and then comes up with the percentage of kids who are doing really well, online to do well, and those are experiencing difficulties that won't necessarily mean difficulties in school learning and social learning beyond, but they certainly set them up for trajectories that are not optimal. Why does that happen? Part of it is a whole myriad of reasons. Some of it are social and economic inequities. Um, we see more kids in those categories in the lower, uh, who are having difficulties, more kids in lower socioeconomic groups. But if you added up the total number of children across the population, there are actually more children who are not poor who are having difficulties than children in the lowest socioeconomic group. Mm. In part because um, the majority of kids are not in the lower socioeconomic group. We, we don't have as much deep abject poverty as other countries do. Uh, nevertheless, it's still a significant number. Kids who are, we call them, are, they're often labeled as vulnerable, are exist across socioeconomic groupings there are a higher percentage than the lower group, but there's lots spread across all economic groups. There are certainly the home environment matters and it matters a lot. Some kids win the lot lottery of a great home environment and it's not all money. Other kids experience more difficulties and, and that matters a lot. But what also matters is whether they are able to participate in a regular ongoing early childhood education program with other children and qualified staff. That seems to make a big difference. It particularly makes a difference for kids who are vulnerable, kids who are in lower uh, economic circumstances, et cetera. They do better when they are in uh, these programs, but all kids benefit. And those kids who are having more difficulties benefit when it's a universal program, okay? Just think about it. If you have kids who don't have a lot of vocabulary and you get them all together in a group on a regular basis, five days a week, you're continually trying to build their vocabulary, but they're not, it's not the same environment as if you have a mixed grouping with some kids with a whole lot more vocabulary with sure. kids with less. It makes it, that matters and makes a big difference. So universal programs that bring everybody in the door that are not stigmatized, do the most to so support the kids who need it the most. And I think this, uh, I, I may be, uh, uh, I could stand correction, but this is one in four of the overall population. And I would expect yeah. it's probably much higher in indigenous and racialized communities. Yeah, we have to be careful there um, mm -hmm. on a number of levels. First of all, um, in many racial newcomer uh, groupings coming into into um, Canada, uh, the the gaps that may exist around vocabulary and things like that often disappear once kids get together with other right. kids. Mm -hmm. 
So you may see if they haven't been with other kids before, when they, this uh, assessment is done at age five, when they're in kindergarten, you might see a gap there, but they often quickly catch up because they're there with other kids talking, et cetera, et cetera. Just by the way, kids learn more from each other than they do from us professionals. Okay, just, just keep that in mind. They, what they care about most is play with other children and they learn a lot from each other. We need to realize that and think about how we set up the environment. So you, you bring kids in at that young age with other kids and if it's a half decent environment and there are kids with good vocabulary, that gap often disappears. So that, that's one piece. In terms of indigenous communities, we have to be very, very careful because of the, um, you know, the racism the, the, that indigenous communities have experienced, our neglectful understanding of indigenous cultures and languages, our inability to understand it isn't one indigenous culture in Canada or one indigenous language, it's many our lack of understanding of, of indigenous ways of, of knowledge, of wisdom, of connection to the land. And we sometimes ignore all of that and then assess kids using indicators that are, are based on uh, a whole different cultural background. And we don't take the time to recognize mm. the value. So I'm very, I mean, and, and because of the history that we have in Canada of testing and, and then, uh, you know, the, the whole, everything from um, the residential schools to 60 schools, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, and labeling indigenous kids um, when we assess them based on cultural uh, uh, contexts that are completely inappropriate. So I, yeah. don't want to go there. Um, and we often ignore the strengths. We may have, in many Indigenous cultures, you may have kids who don't, and I'm doing a generalization, so I put it under that tent. You, you may have kids who don't seem to have a lot of language, but they can go out in the bush and recognize uh, recognize footprints, recognize tracks, recognize trails, recognize uh, the positioning of, of shadows and trees, et cetera, that uh, are mind boggling. But we don't always take the time to listen to that. And this is part of the, the, the capable person concept. Yes. That yes. originated, I think, uh, in the 90s, according to the study in the, in the Northwest Territories. Right. Which... I know is a, an entirely different uh, subject, but uh, Jane, there's still, after all the research, a very entrenched notion that early childhood education is a woman's job and it's just part of raising a family. And there are some who still say that childcare is really just babysitting or taking care of the kids while mommy goes to work. Is that, uh, do you still find that that's a roadblock or is that melting away that these attitudes? Yes, definitely melting away. Um, I hear it far less often. I think the pandemic has been a wake up call for mm. who might've thought that before. 
including perhaps uh, grandparents who might have felt that way, who had been called upon and recognize <laughs> what's involved. Yeah. Uh, definitely overall, I think um, fathers today, young fathers today have a more active role in the majority of families, of two-parent families, uh, both parents are working. And the pandemic has really raised this issue uh, to the forefront because the specter of women not going back to work is really scary for economic recovery. Right? I mean, it's got people quite worried because our economic recovery is based on getting the employment participation of men and women uh, back to where it was before and continuing to increase given our, given our aging demographic. So I think that has, has really struck people. At the same time, who's not getting back to work as fast? Mm-hmm. It, it's working, it's mothers with young children are the least likely to be going back to work and their participation rate is, is still well, you know, at one point it was reported to be where it was in the mid nineties, 1990s, which is now a few wow. decades ago. Uh, I think the Royal Bank came out with that a couple of, of months ago. So there is real concern about that. And the concern is not about, well, isn't this a great thing? Because mothers are back to doing what they should be. The concern is, whoa, the economy needs them. We Our economic recovery, our go forward is absolutely dependent on uh, women going back to work in the same numbers as before the pandemic and continuing to increase in their percentage because that's where there's some growth to be had. And right. going forward, post-pandemic and hopefully economic recovery, we're still going to need all hands on deck to keep the economy moving because of our aging demographic. From your perspective, Jane, has, has the, the, the early childhood education field, if you will, are you seeing change? Do you see policymakers and governments looking at this pandemic and saying, well, there have been some, you know, silver linings, uh, you know, in, in many sectors, but has it really touched the young and the most vulnerable? Well, the uh, September, end of September, federal government speech from the throne mm-hmm. signaled uh, intention to make a significant investment in early learning and childcare. I'm doing it, not exact wording, but in early learning and childcare, working with the provinces and territories. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it referenced, it went on, for, it was more than a one-liner, it was a paragraph. It referenced that this was raised 50 years ago in the Royal Commission <laughs> on the Status of Women which it was. Yep. And that, you know, we needed to get on with it. Uh, And they were prepared to make a, I think term was significant investment. Details to come. Um, So, you know, I think that gave everybody some hope. um, What might be coming down the pipes that would really provide the kind of support we need to move this forward. 
Um, at the same time, reopening within the pandemic is a struggle for early childhood programs. Those EC, early childhood education programs that are delivered through public education, including full day kindergarten for four and five year olds in Ontario, full day programs in the school system in other provinces, Nova Scotia has all four year olds in the school system as well. I mean, that's going forward on the platform of public education. Lots of challenges and struggles, but still it's going forward and programs are open and so forth. And parents have, are choosing to take those options up. Well, you point out that the, an investment, uh, talking dollars here in early childhood education has an amazing return. I think it's uh, for every dollar, there's a $6 return. That's right. So yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, a little strange then that it has taken 50 years and we're still not out of the woods. We still don't have, uh, you know, ECE that reflects the wealth and the status of our country. Yeah, no, it, it is truly mind-boggling why we are still here. Uh, and yes, the one in one dollar invest one dollar now recoup six dollars between what you recoup now and what you get in the future. That's work done by uh, Craig Alexander. He was chief economist at the um, at the um, conference center uh, in um, Ottawa, and he is now chief. He's now at Deloitte, uh, Canada economist. And he did that work, Conference Board of Canada, excuse me, that's the proper title. And that, that report is readily available online. And that's our Canadian take on it. We've got lots of American studies uh, and other studies that keep repeating mm -hmm. the same thing. And what, what the uh, Craig's work, Craig Alexander's work is talking about, if you did it across a, in a universal system, what kind of return on investment would you get? Yeah, some kids, it might not make much difference. They've got lots and lots of advantages anyway. They're, you know, in their home learning environment and their private school for nursery school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this isn't going to really make a difference to them. But overall, across the population, that's the kind of return on investment. And it's probably greater now that we're in the pandemic and the costs of that, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, the in, uh, investing in early childhood education has probably never been a better investment and we'll pay a big cost if we don't do it. Well, you mentioned in the study, you know, if we don't value the work of early childhood educators, uh, you know, what does that say about how yeah. we value children, period? That's right. And that's one of the major challenges going forward in expanding opportunities for young children in early childhood education. We have to deal with the challenge of the early childhood workforce. Mm -hmm. Their uh, re, uh, recruiting and retention is a big issue. It's been a big issue as long as I can remember. I wrote reports about it 30 years ago. I could go in there and do a date change and not much. Oh, okay. So, but, Having said that, we are graduating and have continued to graduate a lot of qualified early childhood educators. When 
programs open up that provide decent compensation, good work environments, professional leadership, are part of an education system, there is no problem in attracting and retaining qualified educators. So I think, yes, we need to continue to, we need to continue to prepare the professional learning qualifications, but we also need to recognize that um, the real solution to the workforce problem is uh, to have decent work environment with proper compensation, crop, proper benefits, and provide the kind of infrastructure that supports their work as early childhood educators. Well, it's, it's ironic or bizarre that um, we all know, the studies are there, that early childhood, those you know, first months and years in a child's education and his or her development are essential. If you miss something in those years, you can't get it back. So, and yet early childhood educators are the most poorly paid in the entire sphere of educators, kindergarten yeah. teachers and early childhood. And then the price, the, the, the salaries seem to go up and you get tenured professors who are making you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, a year. So it's like we've got the cart before yep. the horse. Ab absolutely. And, it, you know, we, we know that, well, the studies that show how, how early childhood education benefits young children, the studies that show the biggest benefits are those that have good quality. And good quality hinges on qualified educators in a decent, in, you know, decent learning environments that are also good work environments. So if we really want to maximize our investment, we have to have qualified educators. Therefore, we have to have the compensation. Um, we also need to think of the, the cost of catching up. Mm -hmm. I don't like to say, Frank, Neil, I don't really like to say they can never catch up because I don't want to write off kids at five and six years. Okay? Yeah. It just takes a lot more effort and can be a lot more expensive. It may not happen, but I don't ever want to say it won't ever happen, okay? But we could reduce the demand, the draw on special education services within the public education primary secondary system if we paid attention and provided early childhood education. Some kids will always need extra efforts, absolutely, and they should be provided with them. But many of the draw on resources for kids in, in primary and elementary and, and so forth schooling are because of behavioral issues, because of mild learning dis problems, difficulties, and language delays. Those are three areas where we know early childhood education can make a difference. And we have the evidence uh, that's been summarized by uh, Dr. David Philpott um, in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, it, it's been summarized by he and his colleagues how robust that evidence is that we can reduce the draw on early child, on special education by providing high quality ECE to more kids. So 
and it's a lot less expensive to do it that mm -hmm. way and have to pour a lot of resources in later um, to catch kids up. Right. Now, your, your study also says that uh, early childhood education is not an extension of school. Rather, it's an extension of play that engages and delights young children. And yet, you say that over the past 60 years, it's not just since you know social media came along, but over the past 60 years, the time children spend playing with each other has diminished, particularly right. in, in active free play that is unstructured and uh, led or guided by children. Right. Yes. I mean, that, there's multiple lines of evidence that point to that um, uh, from multiple places about how. Mm -hmm. we, and part of it is we're worried about our, you know, kids used to go outside and play until it was dark. Uh, somebody rang a bell and they came running in. OK, that may be going back a long time. But, you know, <laughs> kids used to have much more time on their own. Some people call it the third space of childhood for young school age kids. Uh, between school and home that they played without adult direction. Young kids have, used to have much more time, but we've become much more cautious about having kids outdoors on their own. We're worried about their safety and we're worried about dangers. Uh, and we've reduced the opportunities for play with other children. Uh, and that's one of the things that's absolutely central to early childhood education. It's not all free play or all child directed. It's there's a whole the, and the right. study gets into that too. It's a whole continuum, but nevertheless, it's still very important to kids. And it that's the skill of the early childhood educator is to be able to dance along uh, a variety of of play based learning opportunities, not just stay in in one place. Uh, and, and certainly provide the opportunities for that kind of free play that, that kids need and physically active play. Yeah. We've got a lot of, uh, of evidence about the reduction of physically active play. Sometimes people are concerned about risky play that kids may become injured um, and we become, you know, risk adverse mm -hmm. and that's having a negative impact. So, we definitely um, want to see early childhood education promoting that play-based learning, which is really another term for experiential learning that can continue on into the school system. And rather than people have been concerned about something called schoolification, where um, academic teacher-directed drill and kill approaches will be pushed down to younger and younger children. And you'll have visions of three-year-olds with pencils in hand trying to do addition sums, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so there's been some concern about that in aligning with the education system. But what we're seeing in Canada is actually quite different. Where, as we bring younger children into public education, into that public platform that exists in every community uh, and it's non-stigmatized to attend and so has some advantages, what we're seeing is that that play-based learning approach pushes up into the early school years. We call mm -hmm. it qualification. And that, you know, there's starting to be 
more experiential learning or problem-based learning uh, extending up into the school system. And well, that's very central to what we call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Don't forget the arts. I know, STEAM. <laughs> well, the arts are central. Yeah. The arts, yes, the well, arts, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Just quickly, um, there are two uh, benefits of early childhood education that perhaps are even more singular, more um, transformative. And you mentioned that a good early childhood education lifts families out of poverty yeah. and social exclusion and also reconciles work and family life. I mean, yeah. wow. Yes. I mean... If you, if you are living on social assistance and have a couple of kids, the fastest way out of poverty is working, mm -hmm. having a job and a paycheck. And a parent who gets into the workforce when their child is a preschooler mm -hmm. may not earn huge, you know, maybe still very low income. Of course, our child tax benefit helps. Yeah, uh, that Canada has that certainly helps working parents, but they're far more likely to be well above poverty when their child is ten or twelve, compared to staying on social assistance. So absolutely, uh, it uh, makes it lifts kids it lifts kids out of poverty, and that's partly how it pays for itself because there's a less of a drawdown in um, in those kinds of social assistance. And this is not just economic modeling about what might happen. It actually happened in Quebec. Yeah. When Quebec brought in, uh, you know, it's very low cost, say, Centre de Petit Enfant childcare centers, educational childcare centers, along with some other economic measures to support working families. They found that. They found that it paid for itself and it really did increase, move people off of poverty and increase the number of women in the labor force. It actually happened. It's not just something that might happen in the future. Well, Jane, um, you know, thank you so much for shepherding this uh, early year study for through the system uh, and the other three as well. Your involvement uh, is so critical to moving this conversation and policies forward. I wish you um, and your team, all the very best, um, you know, lobbying and doing what you can at all levels of government to, uh, you know, erase this, this, I don't know, this stain on, on Canada's reputation and more importantly, to give all kids and families a fair start. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Jane Bertrand. Please take a moment to write and review Writers' Festival Radio and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We really can't do it without you. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us for our final podcast of the season this Friday, December 4th, for a conversation on improvisation with acclaimed author and musician Stephen Nakmanovich. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is the festival's program director. 
Neil Wilson and Taya Yateman are my fellow co-founders of the Republic of Childhood, and I'm Aiden Wilson. Thank you all for listening.